tweet this, quality news is dying. And Twitter growth screeches to a halt at 52 million. This is episode 48 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Tom, tweet this. Quality news is dying. That's not too many characters, is it? No. You know, it was funny. You said they screeches to a halt at 52 million. We were almost there with episode 52. That would have that would have been clever. Yeah, now we just need to get to 52 million. Exactly. It's okay, coming. but you're one, you're one topic ahead of me. Quality <laughs> news is dying. This is from our friend uh, Frederic Filou. How do you like my French? Is that nice? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's the editor of Monday Note, uh, a source we regularly use. Lots of uh, sharp thinking. Oh, no, smart in guy. Absolutely. Uh, The title is News is Afflicted by Its Own Climate Change. It's called Social. And here's the idea, and uh, elements of this are not new, I should state, but he's got a couple of twists on this, which I think are interesting and worthy of conversation. Here it is. Exactly like climate change keeps bringing more droughts and floods, the way news is consumed on social will lead to greater instability in accidents and collateral damage to democracy. Usually I raise a red flag whenever I see an article that talks about damage to democracy because it seems alarmist. But I think even if we put that aside, there's some value here. Well, he started with climate change, too. Talk about alarmists, but I get you. (laughs) (laughs) The news cycle has become faster, denser, and with a greater amplitude, is his point. Scores of uh, new media outlets, lighter, more agile, more profusely funded, were changing the game by operating under their own rules and and the obsessive search for more clicks. The quest resulted in pernicious side effects, the drive to produce large quantities of shallow, superficial pieces, news was aimed at being snacked, not read. So the point here is that in the old days, the news cycle was long and kind of luxurious and, you know, it sloped up, it sloped down. How much time do you have, right? And Mm. today it's just so volatile, it's so fast, it's so sharp, it's so ever-changing. It's not necessarily healthy, quote-unquote, and it's not necessarily informative. Now, he goes on to say, and I think this is so true, No drastic measure could have prevented shifts in the fundamentals of the news consumption. In other words, newspapers, you know, old old media, there's nothing you really could have done to change people's consumption habits, right? Right. But as new digital players joined the fray loaded with venture capital money and a license to incur whatever losses were necessary to capture market share and achieve dominance... Legacy media found themselves on their heels, economically unable to preserve the integrity of their key assets, the ones that used to make the difference between commodity and value-added news. They lost their ability to fortify their element of differentiation, their editorial quality. Hence the title, Quality News is Dying, Tom. What'd you think? I started thinking about the title because I said, well, okay, wait a minute. What is meant by the word quality? (laughs) <laughs> that was what, my title. <laughs> yeah, and what does the word news mean? Okay, and mm-hmm. I was thinking about your title. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because I'm trying to understand this cuz quality to me, if I think about news, it would mean something, some information that surprises and engages people, right? Cuz it has to grab you and then it has to it has to hold you for for mm-hmm. at least a period. Mm-hmm. And and also it has to pull us out of our personal bubbles. Help us empathize with other people and make better decisions. That's my idea of, of quality when it comes to information. Now I started thinking about news. 
Mm-hmm. And I said, well, wait a minute. How am I going to qualify what news is? I mean, is it simply noteworthy information about recent events? Okay. What information? Politics? Sports? Weather? Then you say, okay, what events? Fencing results from the Olympics? A mm-hmm. flood in Italy? A shooting in Chicago? Who in the world is supposed to decide all this? Or is it information that is previously unknown to us, right? Breaking mm-hmm. news or something we need to know about, like an epidemic or a raging wildfire in our area. And listen, why tell me this if I already read about it on Twitter or Facebook or something? So this is really confusing. Well, you- <laughs> I think you're hitting on a couple of things at once. First of all, you're restating his point that look, consumption was going this way anyway. There's nothing legacy media can do about it, right? Right. The other thing I think that, that's a tell here is the reference to democracy, right? The reference to democracy implies a definition of news and information that has, that has a, a, a halo of public service. In other words, this is important for you as, as a citizen to know. That's the definition of news being used here. As you just indicated, that's not necessarily the definition of news that is salient to me, a consumer of information. If I'm more interested in the Kardashians than, than in uh, global climate change, then you can bet that I have a different definition of news than the global co- climate change folks do, right? So is he? So is he basically saying news is politics? That's his. I think that he is saying news. No, he's not saying news is politics. He's saying news is information of value to the public, and there's no one looking out for the public interest. There's no one looking out to give you the medicine that you need. People are just looking out to give you the sugar that you want. <laughs> yeah, but who decides what the medicine is? I mean, have you ever have you ever had somebody? Have you ever turned on a news and had them say? Um, the public garden is overgrown with weeds. Okay. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, mean, I do, but, 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 but I hear your point that who decides what the medicine is, but I'll tell you who it isn't. The people who decide what the sugar is. Us, you mean? <laughs> yes, we're the ones who decide what the sugar is. Now, he goes on, interesting, I think this piece actually gets more interesting it goes on, because then he goes to talk about video and about text, and I have a lot to say about this. We'll see what your take is on this. Today, the uh, upcoming dominance of video is the talk of the town. Allow me a grain of skepticism. First, glowing promises for video consumption come from actors with a strong economic agenda. That is abjectly true, right? Facebook, Verizon, YouTube, Periscope. As for Facebook, the stunning, quote, video stream numbers must be taken with great caution. Facebook tends to vastly overcount videos that, in fact, play automatically. Quite true meaning not requested by users, just in my way, right? We used to call those commercials. Mm. In addition, the social network acts as a copyright terminator with more than 70% of its most popular segments that are in fact stolen, which I found interesting. Uh, Therefore, while YouTube might be a true enabler for video producers, Facebook is more into the recycling business of stolen ideas. And then he goes on to talk about When it comes to news, the death of text has been greatly exaggerated, and here I think it goes off the rails. Here's what he says, and this is a report from something called Digital News Report, uh, a survey. Across our entire sample, 26 countries, the vast majority, 78%, say they only read news in text or occasionally watch news video that looks interesting, but just 1 in 20 say they mostly watch rather than read news online. Online. You, online. Did online. you have a thought about that? And then I'll go on my rant. Well, online, I 
they might be right, but I can guarantee you that most people consume the news by flipping on their television set in the morning before they leave the house. That's true. All right? That's but, true. So now he's talking about... Where We're talking about people, online. Uh, yeah, I... Now, this is a personal, this is a personal anecdote, so I, I don't know. I don't like to sit and consume my news online via video mm -hmm. because it's not fast. Ah, okay. You have now queued up my rant. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's go back to the survey. The vast majority, almost 80%, say they only read news in text or occasionally watch news video. Just one in 20 say they mostly watch rather than read news online. To me, that survey has nothing to do with news. That survey is about time. That survey is about time, not attention. So um, think about it this way. P like you just said, people don't want to spend their time viewing what can be scanned right. because the time it takes to scan is less than the time it takes to view. Exactly. So this is, this is more about time. Now, that said, why does video matter, period? Video matters, period, because video is better at capturing attention than text is because one picture is in fact worth a thousand words. So it's better at capturing attention, it's not necessarily better at satisfying attention. You see my point? I think so. I think so, so. It, I, I'm saying this is really, it really comes down to time. What people are really telling you is they want to spend as little time as possible. And if one picture is worth a thousand words, I'll pay attention to that picture. But if you expect me to spend time watching something that I could digest in less time by reading it, why would I ever do that? Then the second thing is, you know, the presence of text does not imply the presence of reading. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We've, we've gone over this, all these headlines that people read and nobody ever reads what's underneath it, right? It's not just that. I had an interesting observation I wanted to share with you and tell me what you think about this. You, like I, occasionally are downloading books on Kindles, right? Yeah. You enable those highlights, right? So you can see what everybody's highlighting in the right. Kindle books you read. And we're talking nonfiction books, let's say. Have you noticed that the deeper you get into any Kindle book that contains highlights, the fewer highlights you find? Yeah, people have, have, have shut the... They're not reading the whole thing. They're book. not reading the whole thing. That's exactly my point. That happens, Tom. I'll bet if you were to do a study of and take a thousand Kindle nonfiction books and just measure the highlights from the percentage, you know, the first 10, 20, 30, 40, 50%, what you'd find is a precipitous decline that looks much like the precipitous decline of video viewing, ironically yeah. enough. So people don't get to the end of the video and they don't get to the end of the book. So again, this has much more to do with video equals great attention. Text may be greater uh, satisfaction, but uh, in any event, both come down to time. No, no, there's my right. rant for you. Listen, this isn't going to get better. I mean, you know, this is this is what you're talking about is uh, the fact that the average attention span of people is, has dropped from what do the studies say, twelve seconds in two thousand to, to eight seven, seconds yeah. in two thousand fifteen, shorter than a goldfish or whatever, right, right? Right. But that's a direct result of how we're being conditioned by technology, mm -hmm. by, our, by our mobile phones by the way we scan the internet, you know, they're feeding us this snackable content, you know, which by the way is tailored to our specific desires and beliefs because it mm -hmm. works, because right. that's what we click on. Now, I can tell you, I read about on average a book a week, 
And what it requires me to do is to carve out some quiet time and concentrate. And I usually do it in paper form. I also subscribe to like a half a dozen print magazines. And I can tell you, Mark, more and more, I find myself picking these magazines up at my P.O. box and tossing them directly into the recycle bin. Hmm. Because my mind is conditioned to kind of skim. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't want to read these lengthy articles. <laughs> listen, especially if the subject matter has become known to me through you know, some other online curation that I do all day long. That's why I, I, you know, I think as much as we bemoan the disappearance of some of this long-form journalism and so on, the real question is if you were to really chart how many people get 50% in, 75% in, 25 30% in, people would be appalled at what they see. And then they would have to sit back and say, well, now I understand why people prefer snack size content. Yeah, but listen, so here's the thing, right? So if you're, a ma- if you're doing a, a traditional print magazine, you've got to ask yourself a completely different question than what they're asking themselves. What they're asking themselves is, what are people interested in? And we know what it is because of all these online searches and all that. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. If people are already online searching all this stuff and reading it online, and then you stick it on the cover of the print magazine, they don't want to read it. <laughs> so because what they've you, seen it. Because they've seen it. So what you need to do is you need to say, what is no one Googling? Let me put that on the cover of the magazine, and that will be something unexpected that will draw people in to get more information. That's uh, just the other day I was in the store. I saw a bit like a Time Magazine special edition. You know, these are the things they do now. And it was like 60 years of Star Trek. And I thought I could buy that or I could just Google all that exactly. stuff. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> One other thing in this article that I thought was interesting, and I don't think this, uh, this is not necessarily news, but again, it's good to be reminded that with the growth of digital advertising dollars, Facebook and Google are raking in 85 cents for every new dollar spent in digital advertising in the U.S. market. Let me repeat that. Yeah, 85 cents for every new dollar spent. So the implication there is even if you win the growth in digital audience and you're not Facebook or Google, you still ultimately lose. So, <laughs> you know, what's the consequence for, um, for uh, uh, legacy media platforms devoted to the older um, uh, models of uh, information, you know, I, my take on it is, look, advertisers will not fund it. It's going to have to come from philanthropy, where we see it play out in public broadcasting yeah, and subscription. Uh, subscription and donation. Yep. Philanthropy, subscription, and donation. You better make friends with your consumers. Absolutely. <laughs> Go deep. You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Tom, Twitter growth screeches to a halt at 52 million. I had to laugh because, you know, <laughs> How else are you supposed to find bad news when you have 52 million users and you and but the news is bleak, screeching to a. See, it's funny because we're still growing at about a, a, a 25 people right now. So, <laughs> but but they've screeched to a halt. So we should we're optimistic. And these poor people, oh my God, what are they going to do? <laughs> I love that, and I love this article is from um, from Media Post, and the Twitter suffers stagnant growth forecast despite its best efforts. Twitter's growth problem remains worse than ever. By the end of the year, 52.2 million U.S. consumers will access their Twitter accounts at least once a month. Which I don't know if you were to tell me that 
and not paint this as bad, I would think, wow, 52 million people are checking out Twitter once a month. <laughs> if accurate, that would represent a mere 2% increase year over year. Worse yet, eMarketers flatten its growth estimates for Twitter for the next four years. It expects the social giant to add just 3.6 million users by 2020 instead of the 13.9 <laughs> million previously forecast. You know, so obviously, and the, the worse than all that is Twitter's kind of share of domestic social media users is going down because other platforms are exploding. They're becoming unicorns all around it. And it's just horrendous. What, you, what would you take on this? <laughs> I, well, to me, it's funny. I mean, it kind of, it's representative of the mindset of, of right. at least Americans, right? It, That's it, right. It has nothing to do with what we have. It's what's the projection <laughs> for later? <laughs> you know? it's, it's keeping up with the Joneses they with Facebook up, next door to Twitter. Keep up with the Facebooks, you know? <laughs> they should have a family name. Facebook, Johnny. It's like, Facebook. yeah, the, the, the Twitter family is at the dinner table saying, yeah, you know, the Facebook's exactly. next door. Yeah, the Bobby Facebook's Twitter. got a new car. Yeah, the Bobby Facebook's Twitter got a pool. runs home and says, Johnny, Facebook's <laughs> got these great new Nikes. I don't have them. Listen. And then, it, and then it goes on. What is Twitter doing wrong? And I just love this suggestion. I thought it was so incredibly weak. To keep itself competitive, Twitter should play to its strengths, somebody suggests. It has had success with live broadcasting and should continue to make deals to stream sports and political events. In other words, the same things everyone else does, Tom. Just do more of that. Look, Mark. <laughs> yeah. First of all, to understand why Twitter's growth has stalled, you have to understand why Twitter's growth happened in the first place. Mm -hmm. What were the desires and intentions of those people who originally signed up and promoted this thing and helped create this, this platform called Twitter? Now, my guess is that many, if not most of those people, thought that they could create some kind of attention and influence through numbers. Mm -hmm. They were interested in being a, like a public person of some kind. Mm-hmm. But what about all the people who have no such desire, people who aren't interested in growing an audience or following experts and celebrities? You see, mm -hmm. that's most people. Right. And those most people have Facebook. Well, and, yes. And, 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 and even many celebrities I've noticed on Twitter are sending me direct messages saying, hey, you can go over here and follow me on Facebook and friend me over here. And you know what I mean? Are you saying celebrities are communicating with you directly? Well, I had one do it, I don't know. And I wondered, like, does this guy know me or did he just send it to every follower he has? <laughs> I started so, feeling special for a minute. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. Plus, is there any platform, I mean, I, I, is there any platform that gets more publicity than Twitter except for Facebook? I mean, Twitter gets so much publicity. The fact that it isn't growing pretty much signals to me that it's capped out on the number of people who can have a problem solved by whatever it does, right? Furthermore, if you're interested in what's on Twitter, chances are what, whatever tweet interests you is going to be recycled on whatever uh, earned media platform uh, is interested in that content, <laughs> yeah, which exactly. is why, you know, watch CNN, you'll see Donald Trump's tweets everywhere. Exactly. You don't need to follow him on Twitter. You can just watch CNN and see the same thing. In fact, it's better because it takes out all the crap and just gives you the good stuff, right? Yeah. So look, so growth, the, so growth, that's not the problem right now. It's more, how do we go deeper, create more relevance? You know, yes, they're betting on live streaming. I, I get it, especially sports, you know, 
But who knows? Look, they have the deal with the NFL. They're going to stream Thursday night football, tonight's game, mm-hmm. which may have materialized, by the way, because Twitter's CFO, he used to be the CFO of the NFL. So that's kind of my guess. Are you saying he's a man of limited vision? Well, I'm saying that business <laughs> is a big social game, and this guy has friends. But look, they're doing some deals with the NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, and they're close to a deal that's going to get their app on Apple TV. So we'll see. But if mm-hmm. I were to bet on this, my bet, Twitter sells out really soon, just like LinkedIn did. Mm-hmm. Well, we can only hope. <laughs> um, so it's time for rants and raves, Tom. Oh, yeah? Am I going first? So you Please. can always, like, one-up me? Okay, that's okay. That's fine. We'll switch this up at some point. All right, we can do it anytime you want. So make. this is a rave and rant on technology. Because I laugh. I swear to you, sometimes I see technologies and I go, that's cool. I, 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 that makes sense. And then I see similar technologies. Like, what the hell is this about? So I'm, I'm raving for what's coming to, to our new cars, right? For example, mm-hmm. um, Genesis. Hyundai's new luxury division, Hmm. they're going to be the first company that allows users to control car functions remotely using Amazon's Alexa voice commands. And you know I own one of these things, Yes, I do. Oh, she just lit up because she heard the word Alexa, so she's saying, Tom wants me, but I don't know what he wants. She's as smart as my dog. (laughs) So with with this new app with Hyundai, you can sit comfortably in your house and you can say to Alexa... Alexa, unlock my car doors, start the engine, and set the temperature to 70 degrees. Now, in my head, right, I live in this schizophrenic area called New England where the temperature is like bounces all over the place. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's talking to me. So, <laughs> so in my mind, this is pretty cool. There's no need to step outside and either sweat or freeze in the morning. Mm-hmm. I can feel the benefit of this. I like this. Okay. And then I read about Scots, you know, the miracle Grow people? Yeah. Okay, so they're going to create the connected lawn. Uh-oh. An internet of things in the yard. So you buy these soil sensors for 70 bucks or whatever, and you connect your lawn to the My Lawn app, <laughs> which tells you when to water your damn lawn, right? <laughs> now, Mark... Listen, okay, if you're away from home and you own, like, an automatic sprinkler system and stuff, okay. But even (laughs) then, I'd probably just hire a neighborhood kid and get him off his phone and out of the house for a while. But, Jesus, walk outside and take a look. If it's green, you're good, (laughs) right? If it's brown, you're not so good. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. (laughs) uh, All I can say is if my lawn is connected to my soil, I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's as much connection as I can take. It's funny you mentioned that whole kind of, you know, technology one step beyond because this is kind of vaguely related. I wasn't going to do this as a as a rant or a ray. It was close, but I decided it was just too complicated. But there's this new, uh, but I'll do it now because you've you've cued me. There's this new podcast called Placemakers. It's from Slate. Uh, actually from Panoply, the, the, you know, the folks who specialize not only in creating content, but in creating native ads for big brands. And Placemakers is uh, in association with J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, and let's see, what is it about? It's, um, the show is about urban revitalization. 
The host travels across the country reporting on city-specific stories on the subject. The project came about from both the editorial and advertising sides having a shared passion about the revitalization of urban cities. And I thought, who the heck has a shared passion about that? And it's interesting because as I read about this and I thought, okay, placemakers, J.P. Morgan Chase. And I thought, you know, just because you can create a podcast and attach it to any big brand, should you? Well, it depends how much money you're getting paid. Well, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't doubt that's not the limiting factor here. I'm thinking more in terms of, you know, is there really a reason for this content in the world? Do we really need this content in the oh world? Oh, God, there goes Chase as a sponsor. We lose sponsors each week. <laughs> All right, but anyway, that's just the, the warm-up. This is my rant. Tom, I have bad news for you. Madame Tussauds is once again in the news. Oh, Jesus, we're back now, to this. <laughs> longtime listeners, and we have three, <laughs> will recall that a couple of our best episodes uh, showcased events happening at Madame Tussauds. Um, this is actually not Madame Tussauds Hollywood. This one is Madame Tussauds New York Wax Museum. By the way, that's a wax museum. Listen, for if those we don't do don't a know. Madame Tussauds reality type show or something, we, we, we have to do this now. <laughs> the Media Unplugged live show is going to be at Madame, Madame Tussauds. Exactly. So here's the news. An imprint of Donald Trump's left hand was found on display at Madame Tussauds <laughs> New York Wax Museum by the Hollywood Reporter. Using a measuring apparatus, the reporter found, which we used to call a ruler, the reporter found the hand to be a mere 7.25 inches compared to the average male hand size of 7.44 inches. <laughs> <laughs> the revelation threatens to further destabilize Trump's efforts to be president. I can't breathe. <laughs> Some Madame Tussauds attendees were shocked as they compared their hands to Trump's. It's pretty small, said Claire Severson, 22. It's about the same size as mine, and I have a small hand. It's tiny. Maribel Ocampo, a five-foot-tall woman, placed her hand over that of the six-foot-two-inch Trump. Hers was slightly smaller. They're very feminine, she noted, of Trump's hands. They're, they're the size of a regular-sized female. Ismael Gutierrez, a 24-year-old student, was also taken aback by dimensions of Trump's hand. No way, he said. That can't be. Gutierrez's hand was roughly the same size as Trump's, although at 5 foot 4 inches, he is almost a foot shorter. <laughs> a guy that tall, I find that weird. Oh, my God. Oh so my once God. again, Madame Tussauds, New York, which really should be a sponsor of this show, comes through with yeah, the, the standout you know, exhibition. My, that is unbelievable. But you know the funniest thing about it is the fact that people create an association on this little hand size with something else. Instead, they should be saying, oh, his hand's little. Maybe he can't reach that button. <laughs> you mean the button? The button. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at art19.com, our new hosting home. Radio Inc., Media Village, Net News Check, and the American, the um, I almost said it like John Wayne, the American <laughs> Marketing Association. You can follow Tom on Twitter, at Tom Asacker, and Mark, at Mark Ramsey Media. Especially follow Tom, because I'm, you know, I just don't need all that extra effort. Yeah, and I'll DM S you, because I'm a celebrity. <laughs> 
Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover or anything in the world of wax museums, <laughs> please tweet us. Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the truly peerless producer of Media Unplugged, Mr. Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. Exciting is an understatement oh, when it comes to Jeff. Oh, he's going to edit out all this nonsense. I'd love I'm this I'm sure guy. he won't. <laughs> you can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you so much for listening. Nice.